the relationship between athletes and cannabis has long been decried for its perceived negative association. Thankfully, that misconception is being reshaped as athletes are now experiencing a certain form of liberation, one which has inspired them to move from the shadows and serve as advocates for the medicine that they deem so vital. These stories are worthy of greater attention and will serve to help augment the discourse around medicinal cannabis. The cannabis culture and sport deserves to be celebrated, not maligned. And these conversations will move us in that direction. Welcome to Winning with Cannabis with your host, Bill Bronner. Welcome to Winning with Cannabis. This is your host, Bill Bronner. I'm pleased to have you all here uh, joining us for the program. I'm thrilled to invite Greta Gaines on the program. Um, It's an episode I've been looking forward to for a long period of time. Um, Greta's story is quite a fascinating one. It's certainly um, been uh, a very intriguing one to learn about and look forward to sharing that story with you. Greta, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Billy. It's so great to be here. So, Greta, your your, your story, as uh, mentioned before, is um, a bit of an unconventional one in terms of your path that uh, you kind of navigated towards stardom um, in a whole host of different industries, whether it be film, music, uh, beauty products, um, activism. Uh, the world of sport, I, it feels as though just your, your makeup is so wonderfully diverse. It's very refreshing, and you are multi-talented. And um, I know that your parents, obviously, uh, much like all good parents, played a really integral role in uh, shaping a particular mindset, a particular behavior, ethos, outlook uh, into the world that grounded you at a young age and enabled you and I'm sure the rest of your siblings uh, to kind of maneuver through life with a certain sense of freedom and excitement. Um, so to start things off, I'd, I'd like to kind of start, you know, kind of wind the clock back to your youth and the kind of the backwoods of New Hampshire and what that experience was like. I know your um, both your parents are artists, are wonderfully accomplished. Your um, you know father has, you know, he just seems like a, a total renaissance man, has been there and kind of done that and, and does it in a very humble um, and kind of influential way. So if you can, yes, uh, share some of the um, experiences growing up and uh, how those kind of came to define you. Sure. It was, a, it was a rowdy childhood in New Hampshire, but I always felt like an outsider because my parents are fifth or sixth generation um, Southerners from Alabama and Tennessee. But my father came of age, you know, in the 50s and 60s. He was into bodybuilding. He was in the, you know, every kind of extreme sport. He hated Alabama. He hated um, the norms and genders. He hated the racism. He he hated to be hot. So he's just a totally self-invented character and kind of dragged my my poor mother, who's a former Miss Alabama and loved the heat and the beach and all this kind of stuff up to New Hampshire um, in the late 70s because he's an author and a writer and he wanted to be in seclusion um, to start writing. And so uh, culturally, I never really fit in with New Hampshire, but New Hampshire is a great place to be raised for the outdoors. Unbelievable hunting, fishing, skiing. It's 80% wilderness. It's clean. But the ethos that underlies everything there is live free or die, right? So I grew up with this idea of not only two renegade parents who left the South and who reinvented themselves as uh, artists and um, surrounded themselves by those types of people in the arts and 
Um, but my father was like really into all the stuff that he never got exposed to as a kid. His, his obsession was skiing. So when I was tiny, I was on skis and I had a former Olympic medalist as my coach when I was like six or seven at Sunapee Mountain and we were rock climbing and and then we were like inventing games. I mean, there was my dad just throwing these backyard Olympics, inventing paintball in 1982, which turned into this whole other crazy thing. Yeah, but how I wild is that? <laughs> it's totally wild. So I didn't grow up seeing two people like go to work and work on a career. Like my dad had his writing shed. My mother had her art studio. There was no TV. There was no internet. And my brothers and I were either outside playing in the dirt, using our trampoline you know, to jump off the barn roof onto the trampoline, teaching ourselves tricks. And then we got snowboards, the very, very first snowboards that were ever created by Jake uh, uh, Burton Carpenter, who just recently passed away. But those prototypes were being made in, um, in Stratton, Vermont. And my little brother was a ski racer at that academy. So by 1980 or something, 82, we had the prototypes for snowboards. And we just threw that into all the other stuff that we were into. But like, there weren't a lot of rules, you know, there wasn't a lot of supervision. It was kind of like being raised by super cool, smart wolves in the woods. You know, it was like wild. And we got to be exactly who we wanted to be and, and follow what we wanted to do. And um, I was also just molded a lot by my dad, who was just always into art and always into sports. And those have been my two uh, long-term passions are, you know, snowboarding, fishing, and music. Sounds like a, a very bohemian existence in every sense of the word. And sounds like both your parents are very permissive and allowed and encouraged a sense of creativity that obviously um, is still buried and, and sings within you. Um, I'm sure the same rings true for your, um, your siblings as well. It's a really wonderful ingredient um, to be provided with. It is crazy as a parent now of two teenagers, though, being a helicopter mom, looking back at <laughs> with the freedom comes a cost. You know, I feel very lucky that uh, I avoided all kinds of gnarly situations as a teen, you know, by just not being supervised. Um, maybe that's better. I don't know. I'll have to let you know at the end of the day, but it was, uh, you know, like all of us, it's like, you know, we didn't wear seatbelts and it was just right on the roof of the car. I mean, teenagers were, nobody could find you, right? Nobody could track you. You said you went to your friend Denise's house in three home. They just assumed that's where you were, not up at a dead show in Saratoga or any other place you could figure out to go. So, um, yeah. Things were certainly was, less complicated and, and there was a, a kind of a widespread sense of innocence um, yeah. amongst our generation in that you could operate somewhat undetected and obviously you had to be careful, but you know, the mistakes that you made um, weren't, you know, they, it was easy to conceal them. <laughs> they weren't yeah, readily I, known to all. Absolutely. And I, but I definitely think as much as I love living in the South now, if I'd been raised as, um, you know, like a debutante or a Southern Belle or any of that at that time, um, you know, I, because of my father's strong example and mother's strong example, um, it didn't occur to me that I couldn't go right up against men and compete with men in anything um, in the outdoors, especially when it came to fishing um, or my ability to shoot, you know, shoot a shotgun. Um, and then later, um, to play music and, and, and to compete against men in snowboarding. So it was a really good foundation that way by having a brother on either side. And it was no fear, you know, there wasn't a lot of room for complaining or, or, or saying no, or it was just like, it was like a go for it. It was like play hard, work hard, um, uh, childhood. And, um, 
I'm grateful for it, but it wasn't always easy. As you can imagine, it was, uh, um, it was, it was a lot of a battle. And for me, I, I, a lot of what motivated me was that I, I wanted to get out of New Hampshire and I wanted to see the world and I, I wanted to get out West. And, um, but without that foundation as a ski racer, I could have never segued at the level into pro snowboarding as I did, um, in 19, uh, 1990, 91, 92. That was, that was the foundation that allowed me to just sort of hit the right place at the right time in terms of becoming, um, an extreme pro snowboarder. Can you describe that experience in a, in a bit more depth as to, know you transitioned from New Hampshire ultimately to um, to Jackson Hole, if memory serves me right, mm-hmm. and you were you know had this um, kind of you know uh, you were kind of energetically always pursuing the new what's next as you know any young adventurous spirit does, and that led you to kind of wet your appetite to ski these massive mountains um, in uh, in Valdez, Alaska, and that's where the championship was held, right? Yeah, it was, but my snowboarding career was a complete accident. I moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming with my then boyfriend, Robbie, who was a former NCAA um, skiing champion for Middlebury College. So he was a great skier and I was a decent East Coast ice skier. When he moved to Jackson in 1989, when I graduated from Georgetown and I could not ski in the powder. It was like junk show, yard sale, falling. And he was like, I don't wait. I don't wait more than 60 seconds. Like no friends on a powder day. That's a real thing. Like, even if it's your boyfriend, it's like either keep up or see you at the bottom or see you at the bar. So I was having such a hard time. I had my brother Latham send me out his um, old uh, Burton board and, uh, and I taught myself and I got faster in one season in the powder on the snowboard than I had ever been after 20, you know, I don't know at that point, almost, you know, maybe 17 years of being a skier. So it was for that. It was a, for a practical reason. And because we were in Jackson Hole and I was snowboarding with almost all guys, there was one or two snowboarders back in the day there, Julie Zell and Pippa um, and a few more. But it was basically guys. And we were at the steepest scary in the lower, lower 48. But I didn't know until um, there's a famous Jackson Hole skier who was killed named Doug Coombs. And he and his wife had already been up to Alaska as skiing extreme champions. So these champions were coming home from our town and they were telling, telling us about this contest. And in 1992, they were going to allow snowboarders for the first time to compete. And um, John Griver, who's a great Alpine guy and a great snowboarder, um, he said, you know, you're good enough to go up there. And I rode with him every day. And I didn't know I'd never, I'd only snowboarded with my pack. It wasn't on TV. I had no clue. But he said, you need to um, call this guy, Mike, and the organizer and you're good enough to go. And I had no idea if I was, but you know, ignorance is bliss. And I went, um, and some of the judges there were, we have like the Michael Jordan of our sport back in the eighties and nineties was a guy named Craig Kelly. And he was a judge up there. I also met Laird Hamilton. He was up snowboarding and in a, in a bunch of snowboard rock stars. And, um, it was a weird thing though, Billy, because like none of the guys wanted to ride in the helicopter with me. To, to do our practice runs. It was a little bit like, stay away from the girl. You know what I mean? Like we're a pet because you, you're reliant on each other up there. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, nothing's been bombed. You don't know where the crevasses are. I mean, you've got your basic rescue stuff on, but who you go up the three dudes or women, or three dudes and me, four people total who go up in the helicopter, you're responsible for each other on that run, you know, looking out and nobody wanted to uh, ride with me. And then Craig Kelly was really one of the coolest humans. 
died in an avalanche in Canada. Um, he said, if she's up here in Alaska, she must be pretty good. I said, I want to ride with you, Greta. She, he's like, your board's too short. Let's switch boards. Let's go take a helicopter ride. And let's switch boards. Try out this board. He had his own model. It was a Craig Kelly model. Like he was a huge rock star to us. Yeah, I had his poster. And when he rode with me, it was a signal, right? As kind of the, the cool alpha to everybody else. Like I'm riding with her. It's cool. And I got absorbed into that. And we spent three days. Um, you kind of assume some in, in, instant street cred just by having that compatibility with them. Yeah, I needed it. <laughs> I needed so, it. I, I hate to interrupt you because I, I want to dive yeah. in this um, even uh, in a more detailed way. We have to take mm -hmm. a quick commercial break and then we'll pick up right where we left off. Sounds great. Our advertisers are winners. Please check them out during this brief timeout. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or eight years old. You can still learn something that's gonna make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The concierge for better living with Doc Rob. Only on cannabisradio.com. Let me welcome Nick Hexum from 311. We've never heard things like your music when it first came out. It's like to mix the reggae with the punk and all of that together was just such an unusual sound and, and we loved it. We realized we're not going to copy what's on the radio. At the time, it was all grunge at what that was on the radio. And I said, let's just stick to what we know and wait for a culture to come around to us. Hey, it's Nick Hexum from 311, and you're listening to Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina on CannabisRadio.com. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the 2020 Cannabis Caucus Event Series from March 10th through March 26th. Don't miss this exclusive opportunity for NCIA members to network, learn about regional issues from influential guest speakers, and get the latest news about NCIA's federal policy work and emerging topics. Look for this year's only tour of Cannabis Caucus events coming to Portland, Denver, St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago, Newark, Sacramento, and Los Angeles this March. Stay connected, get informed, and take action to protect our industry and your business. Register now for your complimentary tickets at thecannabisindustry.org slash events. We're back on the field of play with more Winning with Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. So, Greta, you were describing the um, your, your experience previously and the perceptions that were prevailing surrounding uh, just the, the gender issue, the great unknown in terms of whether or not you had the, the talent, um, you know, whatever the, you know, the quote unquote, the goods to managers, more importantly, compete with the best. And it sounds as though um, you're, you just, you know, basically allowed your talent to do the talking and that ultimately spoke volumes and 
Um, I imagine that you were pretty well embraced by the by the community at large after that. And I know that championship was a wonderful springboard for you into um, a, a completely different world. It, yeah, it really was. And the first thing that happened was I knew right away when I came back from Alaska that women were going to accomplish things in snowboarding that had never happened for us in either skateboarding or surfing. I had already experienced those cultures and I knew that snowboarding was different. I knew we were going to be great at it. I mean, I, I could never have projected what these women are doing, like Chloe Kim and stuff in the Olympics now. But I knew that it was like going to be a game changer and we were going to come in hard. So the first thing I did is enlist my best friend, uh, Mary Siebert. Her name was at the time, Mary Simmons. To uh, I taught her how to ride. And then we started the um, Wild Women Snowboarding Camps. And uh, we spent the next 10 years, mostly in Jackson, but in other ski areas, taking women and running them through a three-day camp process to teach them how to snowboard. Because I thought um, there's really um, a niche for this. Women are going to love this. What I found, of course, doing it through the work is that, yes, women were, were coming out to learn to snowboard from us and the other great instructors, but they were also coming for transformational um, opportunities. You know, they were coming because they were transitioning or they wanted to, you know, something was going on where they needed to push themselves on the physical in order to break through to, you know, someplace else. And so it was great. It was, it was wonderful work. And we had, uh, I don't know, hundreds of women. Uh, we talked to snowboard. And at the same time, I was getting um, media opportunities. I was asked in 1997 to host the first MTV Sports and Music Festival at Zilker Park in Austin, Texas. And I was on there with Kennedy and Method Man and all the best snowboarders. My friend Morgan LaFont won um, the big jump contest in her bra and a cowboy hat doing a huge backflip. And then, of course, the X Games started. So it was like I got to see the beginning of the meshing between um, the very big, the first people to the table in terms of quote unquote extreme sports and how it was starting to have a cultural impact and how, you know, um, you know, method man or rappers and snowboarders and like uh, snowboarding was, was punk and it was pretty rock and roll. And it was wild to sort of see um, this isn't a fly by night thing. Snowboarding is here to stay. And not only is it here to stay, like it's starting to impact culture. That was really cool. And then I went on to work for um, ESPN and, and had my own show on the Oxygen Network for, for three years. So it um, I was a musician still and then and still am, but it catapulted me into the beginning of um, extreme sports and broadcasting. And that was a really, really exciting uh, era of my life, basically the 90s. Um, I'm curious to know your marriage with cannabis, um, mm -hmm. did that have its roots in, in your teens, um, you know, as you were snowboarding, obviously, you know, there's a, this, this lovely counterculture that surrounds the snowboarding and kind of extreme sports world. Can't help but think that probably accelerated both your interest uh, and appetite for cannabis. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I did smoke in my teens, uh, mostly in the parking lot of my high school, um, and I was always drawn to it. And I could never drink well. You know, drinking was a big thing. And, but I didn't understand much later in life that I was actually using cannabis my whole life. I've used it really for anxiety and didn't put that together till much, much later. It was just a party thing. And, um, and yeah, I, I didn't do it when I was at Georgetown. Um, I, I was off of it for a while, but definitely snowboard culture, um, 
early 90s, there was a, always a, a lot of weed around. And I think, you know, you couldn't smoke cigarettes because your lungs. And if you wanted to do well and get up early at 530 in the morning to make it for first runs, you know, drinking wasn't a good idea either. So it just seemed to be um, cannabis seemed to be uh, the method of choice for a lot of us at that time. And um, but I like I said, I didn't quite understand what I do now about why I think I was drawn to. When did your, because I, I know when, when, when cannabis, your affinity for it really took root, it, um, you know, kind of, it, it allowed you to kind of redesign your outlook on everything and, and give your life a greater sense of meaning and, and definition, because it has been one of the constants in your life from your teens up until now. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> over the course of that trajectory, um, you've you know, ascended into, you know, a position of responsibility because you have been so wonderfully outspoken on the issue. You have played an instrumental role in shaping the national discourse surrounding uh, the the plant um, from a legal standpoint, from a societal standpoint. You've covered a fair amount of ground. When did that really take root, your, your, your activism approach to cannabis was that something that occurred kind of during your kind of fledgling television career where you just had no 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 it happened much later it happened um in about 2010 um when i joined normal and i went out to speak in seattle and i started meeting a lot of women um in the movement and tried to find my place within the movement i'm not a lawyer and so that i couldn't be a lot of help on the legal side but my interest in um healing and in and studying ayurveda um, it was all starting to come together. So I gravitated towards the activism for medicine and for patients and for advocacy. And living in Tennessee, I could already see the need for it. And um, all of the, the pain that people are in my state experience, not only with all the vets that we have here who suffer from PTSD, but um, th- there's a lot of obese people. There's a lot of methodic people. There's... Um, a lot of people who really needed it as medicine. So it started to click in on the patient side. And then it really, the pavement hit the road when my mother six years ago developed uh, stage two breast cancer. And that's when we decided to uh, forego chemo and do 18 months of, um, of cannabis oil. And uh, <clears throat> I had already been to several patients out of time conferences. I'd studied it. I'd met patients. I'd had the, the blessing of being around some of the smartest um, scientists and doctors and um, and healers in the country. And I'd started to see that, you know, this really works. And this is a real alternative for people who are ready um, to dive into the mind, body, soul connection and let a plant do, let a plant do instead of what you might be considering in Western medicine. There's a time for Western medicine, you know, and you need your surgeries and, and you need your medicines, but the plants are really um, the original medicine, right? That go back thousands of years. So that's when I think, and becoming a mother, you know, and all like that. I mean, all mothers and fathers, like we're healers. Like you see somebody in pain, you want to make it better. And as that New Hampshire girl, live free or die, I was outraged at the laws and I was outraged at people's inability to get safe medicine, the lack of regulation, the black market, all of it. And it just, I just couldn't live with it. I just couldn't live with not being a part of the solution. That's terrific. We have to take one more break and then we'll again pick up right where we left off. Our advertisers are winners. Please check them out during this brief timeout. 
dazed and infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. It's time to Hemp Present. I am going to titillate your audio orifices with weekly radio rendezvous with some of the premier movers, shakers, and history makers of the cannabis community. Radio resident Hempo sapien Vivian McPeak. I will be putting out a call to action on the issues of the day and putting your interests under the big lights as I provide cannabis commentary and weekly interviews that go straight for the nugular. Marijuana! Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Plant Profits. I'm Vern Davis, and I'd like to introduce you to some of the most forward-thinking executives and companies in the cannabis industry. We call them the Plant Profits. Each week on Plant Profits, we talk to the people at the forefront of the industry, creating real companies and career opportunities. We'll learn from the people leading the charge into the promised land of profit. Plant Profits is powered by Protus Global, people solutions firm that has been building companies, changing lives since 1995. P-R-O-T-I-S Global. Find Plant Profits now at CannabisRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the field of play with more Winning with Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. So, Greta, on a personal note, um, you, you mentioned your mom, and um, obviously that was an extremely dramatic episode in your life. And the plant, um, you know, was was a really central part of both her recovery and obviously gave you a new sense of kind of... Um, you know, being going forward and in doing that, he obviously assumed a significant amount of responsibility for helping to, again, as I said before, shape the the kind of the, the national discourse surrounding the topic. Um, my personal question is about your mom. How is she doing? Is she faring well? Great. She, great. She just, you know, turned 80 and had <clears throat> the biggest art show in retrospective of her career and sold a ton of art and is hitting her stride um, in, in many ways as an artist at her age. Um, so she's really making the most of it. And she's, <clears throat> she's the original stoner, you know, I, she loves it too. So um, she really embraced it. And um, I've, I've treated a couple of her little small topical cancers. My, my specialty in love is making topicals. So she's been able to um, deal with a couple skin things. And then, um, you know, you got to get the Mohs technique and get certain skin cancers cut out, but with the surface treatments of the medicines that I've, we've been able to get for her. She's um, we've seen it firsthand over and over. She's mm-hmm. a huge, she's a huge believer, very brave. And then of course she has a study because another friend's going through the same thing. And you sort of see, you know, that what the, some of the side effects of these other medicines can be. So everybody's got to choose their own course. I want people. I feel like it's my duty to make sure that people have every tool in their toolbox. Why would you want to take one of nature's greatest tools away from someone? 
whether it helps them with uh, nausea from their chemo or it helps them with their PTSD or, or whatever else. It's not something that man has the right to regulate. The government certainly doesn't have the right uh, to tell us how to heal ourselves. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's a really heartening story um, regarding your mom and a really good segue into your kind of the, your entrepreneurial pursuits. I know you've been involved in a host of companies, um, all of which have enjoyed um, a fairly high level of success. And most recently you've been investing um, a load of your, your time, spirit and energy into love and hemp. Can you uh, describe a little bit about how the company came about and what are kind of the more extraordinary features surrounding the company itself? Sure. It's loveplushemp.com and we have four CBD beauty products, uh, a facial toner, a, a facial cleanser, toner, and serum, and then a body lotion. It's a women run company from Tennessee. I have great partners. Um, my friend Jody is a mom and, and really believes in um, holistic natural medicine and, uh, she knew that um, I'd already been making products with the hempery and, and we just decided it was a good time. We didn't see these products on the market. We didn't see them at this price point. Our other, one of our other partners is from India, has the Ayurvedic training and background and is like a genius mad scientist formulator. So we all came together to make some products that we, the best uh, that we couldn't find on the market. And so um, the idea is to give women a step-by-step -step routine so that it's all about self-care, right? And I would like to have products that can replace some of the more harmful. Um, I'd like to make just a specific <clears throat> like acne formula for teens because the medicines that they have people on for their skin, the strivactins, I shouldn't say anything uh, by name, probably by brand, but the idea is you, I'm trying to replace harmful alternatives and treat the skin with natural alternatives and cannabidiol and CBD mixed with other plant esters has proven to be really, really effective and nourishing, moisturizing, but more importantly, repairing the skin. But it's about the routine. I want women in Ayurveda, they use a lot of oils, but you have to do a lot of self-care. This is something I've come to late in the game, to spend the time sort of massaging the oils into the face, putting the love. That's why it's called love plus hemp. Women need to take the time to put the love and the attention that we give to everybody else back into themselves. And the plant, and the female flower of the cannabis sativa plant, is a beautiful, beautiful synergy that helps um, with healing. And so that's why I wanted a system for women to not only, the, the products are not only great, but the idea of using the one, two, three steps and taking that love and that self-care, that also helps bring out a woman's inner beauty. As a father of two young girls, Greta, I can readily identify with what you're saying and I'm in lockstep of, with the entire philosophy that uh, has come to kind of envelop Love Plus Amp. I think that is totally awesome and inspiring. There yeah. are, you know, it's just kind of the business as usual with harmful chemicals and, um, you know, the kind of consumers. I think what consumers' behavior just in general is looking for quick, easy, automatic um, results, but they don't necessarily realize how detrimental um, their interactions are with those harmful chemicals. So yeah, I mean, we have this endo this endocannabinoid system through our body. So when we're receiving cannabis into us, we have receptors. It's synergy. We were sort of built to receive it. It was like put here since the dawn of time to help us. And these harm, harmful chemicals, they don't, they don't do that. That's why they're so effective because of our, our endocannabinoid uh, entire system and how that supports the immune system. It's a magical thing 
that is, you can't mess with, with mother nature, you know, she knows best. And when it comes to healing and even with skincare, I just, I think the results speak for themselves. I'll have to send you out some products so you guys can try them. Terrific. I will embrace them wholeheartedly. Um, unfortunately, we're a little bit abbreviated with time, but before we sure. depart, Greta, mm-hmm. uh, I'd be doing you a terrible disservice if I didn't illuminate for our listeners how terrific your music is. Um, and if you can, um, albeit in a, in a really concise way, just describe what you're doing right now, what projects are um, currently in the pipeline or you know, slowly coming to daylight, and most importantly, how people, music enthusiasts in particular, can learn about you, and then similarly, um, how cannabis users can locate your products. Sure. Um, musically, I have a new album that's going to come out in 2020. It's called Empty Spaces, and it'll be inv- available electronically, you know, at Spotify and iTunes and all like that. And it's um, it's it's my most sophisticated sort of personal songwriting record, and. Um, I hope that people can check it out at either gretagames.com or iTunes and um, Facebook. You can follow me on, on Facebook um, because I'm going to start doing some Facebook live performances and going out in support of this record. As far as the skincare at loveplushemp.com. And you can also reach me through my website, reach out and say, hi, we just launched this company a couple of months ago. So it's all brand new. So yeah, I'm excited about new music this year, new products. And um, making myself as of service as I possibly can be. Terrific. You are such a joy to have in our program. I really treasured our exchange. And look forward to reconnecting further on down the road where you can give us all wonderful updates about the album, um, what's happening next with Love Plus Hemp, and uh, other important related topics. So thanks again so much for participating, Greta. It was really a pleasure. Oh, it was my pleasure, too. Have a hemptastic day and love to all of your listeners. Bye. Thanks, Greta. (laughs) Bye-bye. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.